Well, good morning. If you would go ahead and turn to um, Genesis chapter 1. I want to thank the elders and you church for the opportunity to bring this word to you today. I'm going to be going verse by verse through the first three chapters of Genesis, so hold on. No, I'm just kidding. If you don't know where Genesis 1 is, just turn to the front of your Bible. If it's still closed, then you probably need to go a little bit, a little bit further in. I'm going to read the entire first chapter. And although we're not going to be going verse by verse, I am going to pull out a few key verses from chapter 1, a couple in chapter 2, and a couple in chapter 3 as well. But I want to I kind of set the stage and the framework for us by reading all of Genesis chapter 1. Starting in verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void. And darkness was over the face of the earth. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good. And God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day and the darkness he called night. And there was evening and there was morning the first day. And God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse, and it was so. And God called the expanse heaven, and there was evening and there was morning the second day. And God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place, and let the dry land appear. And it was so. God called the dry land earth, and the waters that were gathered together he called seas, and God saw that it was good. And God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, and fruit trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind on the earth. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds, and trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the third day. And God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night. And let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years. And let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so. And God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. And God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth, to rule over the day and over the night, and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the fourth day. And God said, let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures, and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. So God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves with which the waters swarm according to their kinds, and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And God blessed them, saying, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the waters in the seas, and let birds multiply on the earth. And there was evening and there was morning the fifth day. And God said, Let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. 
And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds, and the livestock according to their kinds, and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of the earth and every tree with seed and its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth and to every bird of the heavens and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning the sixth day. And this is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Let me pray for us. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you for the word that you've given to us. I thank you that you have given us this opportunity to be here this morning to hear from your word. And Lord, I ask that your spirit would go amongst us, Father, and move hearts Show us your word, show us your truth, and show us um, what you have commanded of us this morning. So we ask all this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Well, thank you, Chris, uh, for your prayer this morning. Uh, I'm going to try to condense what Chris did in five minutes into about 45 minutes. So I think if you heard his prayer, you've, you've heard much of what's in my sermon. We didn't coordinate that. Uh, but the Lord is good, and he is sovereign. So I want to open this morning with a brief prologue to set the stage for us. So I first got into the world of technology, literally the week that Brian and I got back from our honeymoon back in 2009. Jeremy Bergman actually uh, helped me get a job for the company that he still works for today, and my role was writing technical documentation, which equates to software, software support and process documentation. Very exhilarating, thrilling. And as exciting as that sounds, that led me into the world of what's called IT business analysis and project management, where I spent the next 12 years of my career. Then about two and a half years ago, I had an opportunity to make a career change. I joined the cybersecurity team, managing what we call our privacy office. Privacy is an interesting domain. Many of you, I'm sure, are privacy aware take good steps to protect your data, then there are probably others of you who are like, eh, I don't have anything to hide, I don't really care. If that's your stance, why don't you come talk to me after service? <laughs> now, I'm not going to bore you with the details of privacy, although I find it very interesting. It's kind of my job. But I do want to highlight one specific aspect. Privacy is quickly becoming a highly, highly regulated industry. All major countries across the world have introduced their own laws, tons of laws coming out every day, it seems like. And in the U.S., we already have 10 states that have comprehensive privacy laws. And in fact, just another one this past week, Oregon, um, they signed theirs as well. 
So I won't be surprised if by the end of this year we've doubled that number and have 20 different states, all with their own different laws about how companies should handle individuals' data. So laws are being thrown out everywhere. And you have governments across the world telling companies how they can or cannot use personal information. Last May, I was at a privacy-related conference, and in one of the sessions, one of the speakers was talking about these laws and the regulations, and he made this statement, we should love the regulators. They're guiding us and giving us the direction we need. That was a direct quote. We should love them. And that statement has been plaguing my thoughts for an entire year. And then a couple weeks ago, I was in a different data privacy training course as part of my job. And while speaking about the onset of artificial intelligence and the complexities it presents, as well as its extreme usefulness, the instructor of this course said, the innovators in the AI space are asking for regulations to give them guardrails. So keep in mind, these are not at all Christian events that I was uh, attending, very much secular in every way. So over the course of a year, I'm now hearing people in different settings saying the same thing. Please give us all those juicy regulations. We need more. We're asking to be regulated. They're asking, they're asking for more laws. And the question I'm asking myself for an entire year is why? Why are they saying this? But even more so, is it true? Is it right? Is it, is it good? Should we really love being regulated? Based on some incredibly, incredibly brief digging around, looking through the United States Code of Law, I don't recommend that in your spare time, we have, uh, one, one estimation was over 30,000 active laws in the U.S., and I am certain that is an extremely conservative number. But keep in mind, each of those laws likely have many different regulations inside of it. I will acknowledge that not all of those laws are going to apply to every person, and most, uh, not most, but probably many of these laws actually apply to our government and how it should be run and the way that it should operate and, and be implemented and administered rather than applying to the general population. But the fact remains that in order to maintain what we have come to know as a civilized society, very few people would deny that we do, in fact, need guidance. We, we do need guardrails. We need structure. We need boundaries. Because if we don't have a unified structure to which we are all bound, then as Isaiah prophesied in Isaiah 53, I'm sure many of you are familiar, all we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned every one to his own way. The irony here is that we were given a code of law from the very beginning. We were given this structure, these guardrails at creation. And that is why we're in Genesis 1 this morning. When we read the creation story, we have to see the depth of what God was doing. When God says in verse 3 of Genesis chapter 1, let there be light, it was not as if he turned on a switch. It was not as if he just removed darkness, which then you could ask the question, well, what is darkness? We're not going to get into that. He created light. If I asked you to define, to define what light is, could anybody here do it? Maybe, I'm sure we could all come up with some very convincing definitions. But light is, is not merely brightness. It's made up of electromagnetic radiation. We 
We typically think of light as only that which can be perceived by the human eye. However, it's made up of waves that are different lengths called frequencies. They give us different colors. The longer waves produce red lights. The shorter waves produce these blue lights. And a rainbow is created by the full spectrum of all these lights being put together. And then there are the lights that we can't even perceive, the ultraviolet lights, gamma rays, x-rays, microwaves, all of these are forms of light. And I'm not an expert on light. This isn't a sermon where I'm trying to convince you about how smart I am about light. I googled this for like five minutes, so you can do your own research if you'd like. But that brief science lesson is not the point, right? The point is that with a word, let there be light, the Lord created much more than brightness. He was creating all of the properties necessary for the concept of light to exist. He created conditions that needed to be met for light to be perceived and to be produced. He created the spectrum of colors and, um, and he began the creation of what we've come to call physics. He created mathematics and science and all these concepts that would fascinate mankind for millennia and still to this day, so many concepts that we cannot understand. But guess what else? That's not all. At creation, with the words, let there be light, he created the potential for mankind to harness and even reproduce the light that he had made. He gave the potential for fire. He gave the potential for candles and lanterns. Created the potential for light bulbs. Started out with incandescent bulbs and LEDs and all those fascinating technologies that we have now. How about cameras and video cameras where we can capture them, capture light, and reproduce it on film and now digitally. And we're merely, dis merely discovering all of these gems that the Lord hid in his creation with a word. Let there be light. We take thousands of years and we think we're so brilliant that we've invented all these things. And the Lord, the Lord spoke it into existence. But that's still not all. He did not just create light. He gave it purpose shatters the darkness. It produces heat. It brings forth life. When he said, let there be light, when he gave the command, become light, which I believe may even be a little bit better translation, he was establishing how light would be governed and how the nature of light would be defined. He created the laws of light. You see, a law isn't something that is meant to restrict a thing. A law tells you the purpose and nature of a thing. I asked you a minute ago how you would define light. What we have to first understand is that we don't actually define anything. The definition is its nature. The definition is, in a way, a law that governs what the thing truly is. And if you read through all the rest of the creation days, you begin to see and understand this more fully. So let's spend a few minutes trying to understand what a law really is. We're going to look at the laws of law. Your perception of law, or about a law, and its purpose is going to have a tremendous impact on your life. If you consult, consult the most trustworthy dictionary, it's likely going to tell you something like, law is a binding custom or practice in a community. A law is a rule of conduct or action prescribed or formally recognized as binding or enforced by a controlling authority. A rule or order 
um, a, a law is a rule or order that is advisable or obligatory to observe. The Cambridge Dictionary says a, a law is a rule usually made by a government that is used to order the way in which society behaves. And I know you are all especially going to love this one. Direct from the U.S. government kids website. In an effort to make laws fun and exciting, we are told laws are just like the rules of a game. They tell us how to play fairly and how to make sure that everyone is treated in the same way. And it goes on to say, laws can keep you safe. Is that true? Is that, is that what a law is? Is a law merely something that's supposed to tell people what behavior they should display in a particular set of circumstances? Or prescribe to them the behavior that they should display in every single type of circumstance? Do laws actually change someone's behavior? Oh, sure, laws affect our behavior all the time. But the problem is that just changing a person's behavior isn't the purpose of a law. When the psalmists sing of the law, they aren't recounting how it has changed their behavior. Consider Psalm 19.7. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. How about Psalm 119.165? Great peace have those who love your law. Nothing can make them stumble. Just a few verses later in verse 174, I long for your salvation, O Lord, and your law is my delight. Doesn't sound like these verses are rejoicing over changed behavior. Laws are a litmus test. They indicate where your heart is. Are you in a right standing with God? If you're in a pattern of disobedience, your heart is not surrendered to Christ as your Lord in that area. But when you look at what God has commanded and find yourself in obedience, that's what it looks like to be surrendered to the Lordship of Christ. So when we talk about Jesus being Lord over every area, this is what it means. You hold your life up to the Lord's commands and you compare it. Where do you stand? If you fall short, there's likely something either you don't understand or something you're not surrendering, or something you're directly disobeying. And either way, it's likely that you need to repent. So why do we have this skewed view of law? And to answer that, I want to jump ahead into chapter 2 and look at verses 16 and 17. You're welcome to turn there and follow along with me. But Genesis 2, starting in verse 16, we're told, The Lord God commanded the man, saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you, sure, you shall surely die. Notice that God did not say, if you eat of the fruit, I'm going to kill you. But isn't that how we act sometimes? Isn't that how our perception of law often seems? We tend to think of his laws that way. We tend to think that his discipline is a threat. What he said was, in the day that you eat of the fruit, you will surely die. And there's a certainty expressed in those words. It doesn't even say if you eat of it. He says, in the day that you eat of it. 
He's not making a threat. He's explaining a consequence. He told them not to eat of the fruit because he was explaining to them what would happen when they rebelled against the nature of his creation. He wasn't trying to keep them from having something good. It wasn't like God had this immaculate cookie jar up on a top shelf full of his favorite cookies that he wanted to keep to himself and didn't want to share with his kids. No, it's much much more like he was telling them not to stick a fork in a light socket. In his perfection, the world breaks when we step outside his created order. Was it oppressive for God to give them this law, to give them these bounds to live in? No, it was the greatest grace he could show them, to reveal to them the standard and the plan that he had for his creation. See, his laws free us from indecision and from doubt. His laws set us free to live according to his creation ordinance. There are many in the church who hear of calls to obedience to the Lord's commands, and they immediately call it legalism. In fact, I've had close friends make this accusation to me. But it is not legalism to observe what the Lord has commanded and respond with a desire to obey it. Legalism says that my obedience will make me righteous. However, obedience is a fruit, a fruit of right standing with God. So when we see the truth of Christ's lordship over our lives, your desire begins to change. And you will have a desire to obey because you know that your righteousness is a gift that was freely given to you. C.S. Lewis tells about his own conversion story in his book titled Surprised by Joy, which I read a few months ago. He likened being compelled to follow Christ to how the characters in a book are compelled to obey the whims of the author. He says, and this is again of his conversion story, the commands were inexorable, but they were backed by no sanctions. God was to be obeyed simply because he was God. He taught me that a thing can be revered not for what it can do to us, but what it, for what it is in itself. That is why, though it was a terror, it was no surprise to learn that God is to be obeyed because of what he is in himself. If you ask why we should obey God, in the last resort, the answer is, I am. To know God is to know that our obedience is due to him. The law was created and given to serve as an act of obedience that should lead us to worship. Instead, it became our act of legalism that led us to idolatry. In our reading plan earlier this year, a few verses from Leviticus 26 struck me as I was already planning and preparing this sermon. The Lord speaks of the blessing of obedience specifically in verses 11 through 13 of Leviticus 26. It says, if you walk in my statues and observe my commandments and do them, I will make my dwelling among you and my soul shall not abhor you. And listen to what he says here. And I will walk among you. And will be your God, and you shall be my people. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, that you should not be their slaves. And I have broken the bars of your yoke and made you walk erect. Does that not sound as if the Lord is describing a time before sin, when he once walked among his people, among Adam and Eve, when they were free, not slaves? 
not even slaves yet to sin. The gospel speaks of restoring mankind to the original design before sin, when there was no doubt of the word of God, when there was no questioning of his law and purpose of man. So I want us to consider for a moment, can your understanding of law actually have any significant impact on your own life? Let me follow that up with a second question. Does Christianity have any impact on your life? We talk about Christianity and we talk about the gospel, but what is it? Chris, Chris prayed very succinctly through this earlier this morning. The gospel isn't merely a religion you can choose because you get to have a personal relationship with Jesus. It doesn't start with Jesus dying on the cross. It, it, just, it isn't just that Jesus is the fulfillment of all the laws that we couldn't keep. It doesn't even start with Jesus being born. It doesn't begin when Adam and Eve first sinned. But where else could the gospel begin? It begins, of course, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The gospel begins at the beginning of all creation when the almighty God, Yahweh himself, with Jesus, set into motion not only everything that exists, but also when he established the very laws and nature that would govern and guide his creation. And for what purpose? To glorify himself. Christianity is not merely a belief someone can choose. I did have someone tell me, this was about 17 years ago, I believe. I sure am glad I chose to be a Christian. And being a new, newly... I don't know if you'd say converted Calvinist or um, the, the concepts were new to me. But I did respond, literally, in that moment, well, I would have to say that I sure am glad God chose me. And thus ensued a heated, <laughs> impassioned, we'll call it a discussion. <laughs> he didn't have to choose me. He didn't have to choose any of us, but he did. And to what end? Did he choose us to be bound into a life of oppressive rules and manipulation, withholding from us all the pleasures that are available to all those who walk in the ways of the world? No, despite what the world would tell us right now. Again, to borrow from C.S. Lewis, this time from a sermon that he preached called Transposition, he says, I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun has risen, not only because I see it, but because by it I see everything else taking us back to creation. Again, the Lord did not just create a thing called light. Everyone always refers to the laws of nature, but nature doesn't have any laws of itself. Those laws were assigned to it. The Lord established light as a beacon, a guide, a ruler by which all the rest of his creation would be revealed. Genesis 1 tells us, God said, let there be light. And then what did Jesus say? In John 8, 12, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. You cannot tell me that God did not know exactly what he was doing when the first words he records of himself speaking are, let there be light, become light. The gospel begins when Yahweh speaks. A previous pastor of ours, Keith Tillman, once said, God's words alone are sufficient for the fulfillment of his will. 
The mere utterances of God carry more power than the combined total of all of man's laws. So when the serpent whispered in Eve's ear in Genesis 3, and he said, did God really say? He was not simply trying to deceive her. In that moment, he introduced death into the world. He broke God's law. He broke the nature of God's creation. I want to try something. So I bet almost all of the kids in this building can answer this question. So children, listen up. If you're not paying attention, now would be a great time to tune in, else you're going to get left out. If you know the answer to this question, children, I want you to shout it out. What is the chief end of man? Great. There's a little variation there, but I think we all got it. To glorify God and enjoy him forever. From the Westminster Shorter Catechism. The very next question, I'm not going to ask all of you to recite it, but I have it here. So, What rule hath God given to direct us how we may glorify and enjoy him? The answer, the word of God, which is contained in the scriptures of the Old and New Testaments, is the only rule to direct us how we may glorify and enjoy him. So what are some examples of this rule that we're told? So along with this catechism, we're given scripture references that are used as the basis for every single one of these questions and every single one of the responses. And there are many, and for the sake of our time, I'm not going to read through all of them. But I do encourage you, as a side note, as you catechize your children, your families, do not neglect the scripture references to go with each question and answer. To point back to Senior Chad Blower's sermon last month, there is only one source of truth, the word of God. Do not rely solely on any other source, no matter how reputable, no matter how acceptable or agreeable it may sound. And I'm not saying, don't stop, or I'm, I'm not saying to stop reading or listening to other sources, but also make sure that you always temper it back to the word of the Lord. So one verse, getting back to the catechisms, Supporting the statement to enjoy God forever comes from Isaiah 12, 2. It says, Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and not be afraid, for the Lord God is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. Notice that Isaiah says, I will trust and not be afraid. Again, we're talking about enjoying God forever. And the reference, the source, the supporting verse, one of them is, I will trust and not be afraid. Jesus himself commands very similarly, repeatedly throughout all the Gospels, to not worry, to not be anxious, not let your heart be troubled, not let doubts arise. The Apostle Paul explicitly states in Philippians 4, 6, be anxious for nothing. Why? Why the focus on anxiety, worry, fear? Evan, I thought this was a sermon on Genesis 1. Well, where do these anxieties, worries, fears come from? All your fears, worries, anxieties, despairing, come from not believing or not knowing or trusting what God has said. Chris preached on this two weeks ago. And that the first sin that our elders identified in our body, if I understood correctly, was not believing or trusting the commands of God. He didn't even know that I was going to be preaching a significant point of emphasis on this in this sermon. 
In fact, this very topic is something that the Lord put on my heart and convicted me of over a year ago. And before I was even a member of this church, I was preparing this sermon. So elders, if you need me to preach again, just make sure you give me at least a year's notice. I'm going to need time to analyze my topic thoroughly. (laughs) Scripture speaks so often about unbelief and a lack of trust because that is how sin first entered the world and is common to all men. The law was given to free us from these sins of anxiety and fear. It was given so that we would have no doubt or worry about what we were created for. So what we would confidently know, so that we so that we would confidently know the will of God and walk in joyful obedience to his will. As that is in fact the way he designed us and how he desires for us to live. And not only that, that is how we will find the most joy. The truth is is that we all face doubt and decision, I can pretty much guarantee every day. Whether it's pulling up to a four-way stop with three other cars and nobody moves because nobody knows the laws that govern a four-way stop. (laughs) Or whether you're stranded in a snowstorm while backpacking in the mountains and you can't remember if your guide told you to turn left or to not turn left. It's a very critical moment. Some of you are getting anxious just thinking about that second example. But just so you know, as long as you have a couple Chandler boys with you, you won't die hungry. Isn't that all it takes sometimes? Just the slightest doubt can be paralyzing. Maybe it was a decision about taking a new job or starting your own business, moving your family across the country or to a different country, moving your family to a new church, husbands leading your wives, taking up your responsibility, wives submitting to an imperfect husband, perhaps, kids choosing to honor and obey their parents, even though they really don't want to. The details of the situation don't matter. All of us know what I'm talking about. We face real doubt and worry and anxiety in some way every day of our lives. And that is literally the oldest and most original tactic that Satan uses against God's people. Did God really say? As I already mentioned, with that one question, death was introduced into God's perfect creation. Sin and death began with doubt. So when the elders identified that doubt or disbelief is the number one sin in our body, I would completely agree with them. You can make the argument that that is precisely the root of all other sin. Doubt of what God has said. God's word is sufficient for the fulfillment of his will. When we doubt his word, we cannot be aligned with his will. This is why we have got to go and dig into his word. Every time I read through Exodus, I'm reminded of how quickly doubt can run through an entire population. I'm pretty sure every other chapter, the Israelites scream in exasperation, oh, it would have been better if we just died in Egypt, rather than have to deal with all these hardships. Every time I'm like, can you not just trust the Lord for like 10 minutes? Maybe this will bring it a little closer to home. Have you ever watched what happens when you take something from a toddler, especially a tired one? It's like they're saying, oh, it would have been better if I died than to have my precious taken from me. (laughs) And for me, it's right after something like that happens that the Lord reminds me, well, how do you respond when 
someone cuts you off in traffic? How do you respond when you're trying to fix something in your house only to break three other things? It's real. How about, how do you respond when you've poured your heart out into preparing a meal for your family only to have it burned because you were distracted dealing with a disobedient child? How do you respond when fill in the blank? It's as if Satan were right beside you saying, did God really say he would work everything out for good? Because I'm going to be honest, this looks like a pretty big failure. When you don't know and trust what God has said, you're defenseless. Anglican pastor and theologian John Stott in his book, The Cross of Christ, said, if Satan can keep you ignorant, he can keep you impotent. And one of the best ways to keep you ignorant is to lead you to doubt what God has said. This will be particularly destructive inside the walls of your own home. You see, your understanding of God's commands and your understanding of the laws of his creation will not only impact you, they will impact your family, your husbands, your wives, your children. But it doesn't stop there either. It'll affect and impact those around you. It'll affect and impact the generations of your family. Our understanding of what God has commanded is important. So what are the first commands of God? What are the first commands we see him give? Well, in verse 28, on the sixth day, we see God say, be fruitful and multiply. This is not a sermon about how to multiply. You need to be at the marriage bed discussions for that one. But I do, however, want to point out that we see in verse 22, earlier on the fifth day, he actually had already given that exact same command to the fish and the birds. Notice that in both his command to the fish and his command to man, we are told that he blessed them first. It says he blessed them and said. There's a theme here. His commands come first with a blessing. I'll leave you to consider that particular point more on your own for the sake of time, but I want to look at the difference between his command to the fish and birds on day five and his commands to man on day six. He tells both of them, be fruitful and multiply, but it's only to man that he says to subdue the earth and to have dominion. He tells them both to fill the earth. He tells man to work it. We already discussed what our catechism tells us at the chief end of man. It is to glorify and enjoy God. And if that is truly your first and chief purpose, why is his command not first to love God? In fact, we don't even receive an explicit command to love God until Deuteronomy 6.5, where we're told, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And Jesus himself affirms this as the greatest and first commandment in Matthew 22, verses 37 and 38. And a few verses later, in verse 40 of Matthew 22, he tells us that all of the law and the prophets depend on this great and first commandment, to love the Lord your God. If Jesus says that loving God is the greatest and first commandment, why is it that the first command God gives in Genesis is to multiply and work? Before sin, we were in full communion with God. We knew nothing but loving God. And we had fullness of life in that communion we had with him. 
Not only that, but what is the first thing Scripture tells us that God did? He created life and He worked. So we glorify the Lord by being like Him. He worked and He commands us to work. And by doing so, we love Him and glorify Him. It wasn't until sin and death entered the world that we needed to be shown how to love God. Thus the introduction of what we have come to know as the law, which was given to show us that we could not fulfill it on our own. We needed a savior. But in the creation story, we don't just see God giving man a set of rules. We see him giving the good gifts of all creation to his people. He tells us in verse 28 that we are to have dominion, and he goes on in Genesis 1, verse 29, to tell us, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth, and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. John Gill, a, a Baptist pastor and theologian from the 1700s, in, it, in his exposition of Genesis, said, The Lord led Adam to the garden, and it was a place to serve in the law and keep the commands of it. If your view of law is strictly man-centered, you'll likely never even realize the law that God revealed in these verses. It is a law that is fought, that a father gives to his children. It is a law that gives life and gives freedom. The problem is that our understanding and use of law is usually to set one group of people against another group of people. And this is probably not demonstrated any more clearly than in an evolutionary worldview. The entire pre um, premise of evolution is rivalry, conflict, enemies, survival of the fittest. We perceive that everything is by nature opposed to everything else. A good example, the dinosaurs. How many of us have ever seen a dinosaur or been attacked by a dinosaur? Yet virtually all of us have this idea that the age of dinosaurs must have been an incredibly terrifying and vicious time to live. That's the product of evolutionary thinking. Everything must always be against everything else. Everything must be out there to destroy me. Everything is seeking power, and the only way to get it is to take it from someone or something else. So I've got to destroy them first. But what happens when you can't outright defeat someone else by strength or physical power? You've got to fall back on more subtle and civilized means. You make laws to control them. And you exercise an illegitimate dominion. You see, man's tendency is to use laws to make enemies of others and create division and rivalry. So what about in your own home? How do you use laws? Is your use of laws making enemies of your spouse and your children? Is your use of laws setting your children apart from you to make sure that they know that you are above them and they are inferior to you, that you have power over them? Do you use laws to manipulate the hearts and minds of your children to bend them to your will? That's not law. That's rebellion against the creation order. A law is not a means of controlling someone. A law is the revealing of the nature of a thing. As shown to us in Genesis when used improperly, a law crushes and destroys as opposed to bringing life and freedom. And so I would ask, which definition of law 
are you applying in your home? Which definition of law do you employ? Are you giving your kids laws because you're trying to keep them in line or so that they won't embarrass you? Or are you giving them laws because you want to control them? Or are you giving them laws because you know that that will bring them life and freedom and is how God designed them to live? The good news, as I conclude, is that we have a good father in heaven who's given us his word. Yes, we've turned to our own way, but as our shepherd, he's relentlessly pursued us to restore us to the creation order. And don't miss what he's showing us. When, not if, you find yourself stuck in this rut of indecision, doubt, manipulative application of his commands, recognize that the Lord has already provided you the guide back to him through the spirit, through his word. And I'm not saying to go look for a verse pulled out of context that's gonna make you feel better. Be in his word. Be diligent. Know that reading and meditating and memorizing the word is not only an act of obedience, it's an act of worship and warfare. This message is not meant to be a commentary on our civil laws. It's also not meant to bind anyone's conscience to any particular set of laws. The entire point is to direct us back to creation as our foundation for understanding how the world was designed and how we are to live in it. And to see the work that the Lord is doing to restore us back to that design through Jesus Christ. And through Jesus, our light, we are able to see everything else. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I ask that you would forgive us for we have taken your good commands and twisted them for our own wicked purposes so often. We, your church, have rebelled against them. So it is no surprise that those who hate you now do this same thing. They take your laws and twist them and use them to control others, including your church. Father, I would ask that you forgive us and bring us back to your word to know your truth, to obey your commands, Father, and to glorify you and enjoy you as you have designed us and called us to do. Lord, thank you for this time. Thank you again for the beauty of your word, loving us enough to give it to us, to not leave us um, in our own sin, but Lord, to draw us back to yourself. We thank you and we love you and we ask all this in the name of Christ. Amen.